0: while we were up on the lawn, the view that Thomas Jefferson wanted us to see of the Academical Village, how many stories were the pavilions? They were two-story buildings. How many stories are the pavilions? Turns out they are three, right? Um, so Jefferson is um, a bit of a genius designer. He is, ha- having learned at Monticello, he uses topography in brilliant ways. So he has terraced the ridge and he has built buildings on both sides of that ridge which allow you to visually consume the academical village from one particular vantage point and all you see are elevations that are primarily associated with white people. Right? Which means that these three-story buildings, the spaces that are explicitly associated with African Americans, are out of view right? He is designing away the visibility of the laboring black body. Given his recognition that slavery has despotic tendencies, and he's building an idealized university for the formation and graduation of citizen leaders, of course he's going to do that. He's already done this really well at Monticello, right, many years before. Monticello, Little Mountain, he terraces off that top of that mountain, and he builds his house at one side and then uses the ridges, the, the, the topographic change, so that when you're in the garden at Monticello, you can't see all of the spaces of labor, or the majority of the spaces of labor. They're, they're submerged below ground, right? And so that's a tactic that works well, so he deploys it here at the University of Virginia as well, right? And so, so uh, both sides of the lawn, if you look at it in plan, you'll actually see that it has uh, four registers, right? Um, hotels, pavilions, pavilions, hotels, right? with the lawn right in the middle. Between the hotels, hotels and the pavilions is this sort of unknown, and in most maps, white space. That white space is this zone of the Academical Village. It descends the, uh, the topography on both sides and is subdivided into workyards, uh, gardens and workyards. So we're going to spend just a little bit of time talking about those workyards. Um, The University of Virginia is a landscape populated with between 100 and 140 enslaved African Americans at any one point in time. So from the moment of its opening through the Civil War or into the Civil War, uh, there are about 100 to 140 people who are enslaved and are um, resident here at the Academical Village. If we haven't told the story of Sam the Carpenter and his contributions to the design and construction of the Academical Village. We also haven't told the story of those who uh, lived and died and labored here to support and sustain the operation of the Academical Village. What, what does that look like, right? It's important for us to recognize that each one of these pavilions is actually a small antebellum plantation. The pavilion was associated with a workyard and a work garden. And then there was a parcel, about a 10 acre parcel, just outside of uh, off grounds that was used either as fields or pastures assigned to each of the pavilions, right? And so as we come to recognize that, a landscape of labor kind of quickly comes into view. So if we take a look at Pavilion 4, which is behind me, Pavilion 4, of course, like all the pavilions, is a three-story pavilion. Uh, We know that the very first occupant of this pavilion is George Bladerman, who's a languages professor here at the University of Virginia. And upon his arrival, or soon after his arrival, he actually purchases Uh, Lucy Cottrell. Lucy Cottrell is born at Monticello. She is part of the, um, uh, one of the families uh, that is enslaved by uh, Thomas Jefferson at at Monticello. But at the moment of the death, one of the things we know about Thomas Jefferson, of course, he dies terribly in debt. Uh, And his sons-in-law primarily have to resolve, liquidate the estate. One of the best ways to do that, of course, is to sell off assets uh, and so many of the slave families are sold as a result of the resolution of Thomas Jefferson's estate. So Lucy Cottrell and her two sons, her uh, probably uh, uh, adolescent sons at this point, and her ailing mother are sold as a family unit. There's some complicated exchanges, but they end up being purchased uh, by George Bladerman. So when we look at this cellar space, we have to think about that as Lucy Cottrell's accommodations. So the two windows there Um are her private chamber. The unit on the far left uh, is the light that goes into her cook kitchen. Right? And so there's so that's her cook kitchen, and that's those are her accommodations. It's remarkable that Lucy Cottrell has a private chamber with two windows, a lockable door, and a heated fireplace. Those are really, really lavish accommodations for an enslaved person in this period. Now, when I say private chamber, I mean a private chamber that she, her two sons, and her ailing mother all occupy together. So there's four people uh, in this space. And so it's important for us to recognize that she is the cook. She's probably purchased by George Bladerman, intended to uh, cook for, uh, for him. She might have uh, learned some of the French cooking that Monticello would have been famous for when uh, Thomas Jefferson, of course, uh, takes an enslaved man with him, uh, uh, James Hemings. Uh, and that person is actually, and James was actually trained in a French cooking school in Paris. And so Monticello had a very distinctive cuisine, uh, would, differentiated it from any of the other house, households in Virginia in that period. It's possible, we don't know, but it's possible that Lucy Cottrell has learned some of those, um, uh, some of those uh, cooking practices. And so she's a fairly valuable person at the time of her purchase. Um, and so she uh, moves into, she's the first occupant uh, of, this, uh, of this space, And while we think of these spaces, the spaces we're occupying right now, of course, as a parking lot, we have to reverse engineer what that looked like. And in addition to all of the documentary evidence that we've been culling from Juul and from other uh, repositories of historical evidence, we've also been partnering with archaeologists. And so many of these spaces over time have been excavated by archaeology, and we have a better sense for how these spaces functioned. Uh, this is where we know that the Academical Village is overrun with hogs. And so there are hogs that are just, which is just true of, I mean, Virginia is overrun with hogs in the early 19th century. <laughs> They're just everywhere, which is why we get pork barbecue, right? I mean, so there's, there's a history there also to our foodways. Uh, so they are going to be slaughtering, uh, slaughtering hogs and preparing hogs for salting and curing in these spaces. There are going to be plucking chickens. they are going to be butchering chickens. There's going to be kitchen gardens. All of those kinds of things that we associate with an antebellum plantation, they're happening right behind us. Right? All of that work is happening here. When we experience the gardens today, the gardens behind the pavilions, they're absolutely beautiful azalea-lit uh, spaces. Those were all repurposed in the in, uh, a very late in 1940s and early 1950s. None of those would have been the beautified spaces that we, that we experience today, right? One of the great things that we've come to realize is that these doors that are behind us, these black doors, these were entirely unprogrammed by Jefferson. The reason those spaces exist is because they bump up the, the student rooms so that the student rooms are on uh, level with the lawn. Like, that's their only function. And so these spaces really were just raised foundations, never intended by Jefferson to function in any way which means as soon as the University of Virginia opens, they're they're game. They're free game, right? So these spaces become colonized by occupants in a lot of different ways. We know that the uh, student residents of rooms 10 and 12, which are right over here, write to the board of visitors early on, uh, or actually to the um, proctor, early on complaining about the fact that Professor B's boys... Awaken us early in the morning with the clanging of the milk pans and the mooing of the cow that is stabled in the yard and cellar spaces of our rooms. So we know that the cow is being stabled in one of those two uh, spaces. So when we did our uh, investigation of those, the one that has B2, the one adjacent to the building, we actually found that there was a door that was opened between that little chamber and Lucy Cottrell's kitchen. Right? It was built... uh, uh, with just a solid wall between the foundation wall of the building. But soon after uh, the place became occupied, a door was opened and then it was rebricked in the years after the Civil War. And as soon as we looked at that spatially, she's having to go back through her chamber, out a door, into the workyard, through some kind of gate, not that gate, but through some kind of gate into this workyard. Right? She's like, this is dumb. Why am I doing this big circuit? Because it's right there, right? I need to get to that space right there. Can't we just open a, a, a wall here? Now, of course, I'm, just, I'm projecting. Uh, we, we don't have evidence of that. But it makes, it makes perfect sense. Why, so why would she want to save time? Why would she want to save time? Because she's having to prepare three meals a day for the white family that occupies the pavilion. And she's also a mom, right? Right? She's a mom raising two adolescent boys. Of course she wants to save an extra half hour a day, because that's an extra precious half hour that she gets to spend with her boys. And so when we think about Lucy Cottrell, yes, she's an enslaved woman. Yes, she's a cook. She's probably a very valuable cook. But she's also a mom. And like Sam the carpenter, she's doing her very best to raise two boys who she knows will also move directly into and are already enlisted in the machinery of slavery. How do you love boys, raise them up, train them, and then dispatch them into a landscape of brutality and violence? And that's her, that's her everyday life.